welcome back to the Bubcast, and today we have the entirety of my interview with Derek Hennon, the master of millipedes. If you tuned in last week, you heard a small snippet of that little interview, and today we're going to have the whole thing for you, just including that little bit too, just for continuity's sake. So strap on in, hit that subscribe, and take a listen to Millipede Mania. So yeah. uh, thank you thank you very much for being here. This is, I call it the Bugs, Blood, and Bones podcast. I mm-hmm. talk about everything, invertebrate, creepy crawly, uh, my personal passion, forensic science, forensic entomology, and who knows what else. I'll be getting to entomophagy here pretty soon, another of my favorites. And awesome. uh, I, I, it's so great. Who doesn't want to eat bugs, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you do some research on not bugs, but millipedes, a different branch of the arthropod tree. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in boneless critters? Yeah, so my name is Derek Kennan. I am currently a third-year PhD student at Virginia Tech, and I guess I kind of got into boneless critters after uh, playing a lot of Pokemon as a kid, and then it just kind of seeped into me bit by bit until by the end of the college, I uh, knew that I wanted to really study bugs. And I just kind of happened to stumble into millipedes. And I just, I don't know, I just kept continuing on with them. And I just love them. They're great. (laughs) (laughs) Is is it just their adorable nature, their tiny, tiny little legs that can move so melodically? Yeah, I mean, they're just, they're beautiful. They're small. They're everywhere. Um, A big thing that really got me into it when I was... uh, uh, really just first learning about bugs. I originally wanted to be a marine biologist, oh. but I was, uh, I'm from Ohio, so I was living there at the time, so wasn't too close to any particular ocean, but once <laughs> I realized that I could just find bugs out in the woods uh, whenever I wanted, it's like, well, maybe I can do this instead, and they just grabbed me, and the nice thing about millipedes is whenever you find them, you don't have to worry about them biting you or anything. They might poop on you, but you can just wash your hands and you'll be yeah. fine. And we have a lot of beautiful species, uh, both in Ohio, where I first started, and throughout North America, and particularly in Appalachia, where I'm based now. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people don't think about the millipedes as being very important for our ecosystems. What would you say are some of the more important services they provide that we don't think about? I think the major one that they really do is they're sort of the tractors out in the forest. They're mm-hmm. taking all this uh, leaf litter and other detritus that you find on the forest floor, and they're breaking that down into smaller pieces that uh, other things can kind of colonize. So you've got like fungi and little microbes and things that can really, once those big pieces of leaves of leaves have been torn up by the millipedes, they can really colonize that and break those down into the nutrients that get returned to the soil. So if you like trees, if you like insects, if you like birds going up and up the food chain, then you should like millipedes because they allow it to all really flourish. If someone is out in the woods and they want to find some cool millipedes, what, what should they do? They should flip over some logs, maybe turn over a rock, or just kind of turn over some leaf litter piles, and you're bound to find one eventually. Whenever I'm out collecting, I just have a little garden tool with me, and I just use that to flip over any place that looks kind of moist or might be kind of harboring some millipedes. And you flip them over, and generally they'll just kind of curl up and try to protect themselves so you can kind of get a nice photo or really take a good look <laughs> at them. And, and if someone finds uh, these millipedes, how can they get an idea of like what one species is versus another or male or female? Well, and most millipedes that you're going to see, you'll be able to identify the adult males by picking them up and gently uncurling them and looking mm-hmm. at the uh, underside of the seventh segment. And in males, they will have, instead of normal walking legs, they'll have these modified legs called gonopods. And those are used uh, during mating between millipedes 
and that's what the most of the taxonomy for millipedes is based on the stri- mm-hmm. the actual morphology of those uh, modified legs. And so, if you flip over a millipede and it has uh, a bunch of all just normal legs, you've got yourself mm-hmm. a female. But if you see something kind of weird going on, then you know you've got a male. The wonderful thing about arthropods, at least to me, wonderful. I mean, we're we're biased. Um, <laughs> is these things are so tiny, and that to really get a good idea of you know male, female, or even some just one species from from another, you have to look really close. Uh, that you know, like mm-hmm. you're saying, that seventh segment, you have to look at the 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 sex organs of those little critters, it's very similar with spiders. Some spider species, you have to, the recluses especially, you have to get them under a scope and uh, get over that, that aversion to the creepy crawly. Did you ever have yeah. that, did you ever have that fear of little, little, the little guys, spiders or other guys? Um, sort of. I wasn't like super fearful of them or anything, mm-hmm. but I also didn't want to go out and like touch them and pick them up. I remember uh, when I was younger, I found a, uh, a stag beetle on my back porch one time and mm-hmm. I thought oh wow this is cool so I took some photos of it but I didn't really want to touch it because it was mm-hmm. a male and so it had these big mandibles and I didn't ah. want to get pinched or anything <laughs> so I wasn't like averse or super scared of them but it's like I'm not exactly sure what that thing's going to do so I would just kind of leave it there but you kind of hit it on the head with you know you're really rewarded when you mm-hmm. kind of stop and take a look up very closely with these things and you get to see all the just intricate, beautiful structures that they have and just how interesting these little creatures really are. And there's sort of a similar um, concept in botany that I've mm-hmm. heard uh, researchers will call it tree blindness, where people mm-hmm. just kind of walk around and they'll pass by all these trees and other species and never really stop to take a look. And mm-hmm. so anytime you really are out in nature and have a chance to observe something a little more closely than you normally would, then it's probably going to be worth your time. So maybe just go out for a walk, take five minutes to just stop and look at the places you wouldn't normally think to look at, and you might be surprised by what you see. Yeah, just on your general walk that you always do, if you stop and ask yourself, well, what's this tree that I always see, or what kind of bush is this, then mm-hmm. you're going to learn a lot. Yeah. So uh, this paper that you were co- uh, co-author on, uh, Ephelaria, uh polychroma, a, yeah. a new species of millipede from Cumberland Mountains. Um, so this particular group, this genus uh, Aphloria, is my saying it right? Aphloria. Aphloria. Oh, that sounds yeah. so much prettier. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful. Or is, it is Aphloria. Whoo. Okay. <laughs> so it, you, these these guys were previously found, but not uh, thoroughly characterized or identified as a set species, or possibly more than one species. Uh, how did mm-hmm. you guys? Did, did you just go out and stop and find them and do what we were just saying and then go from there to get a thorough uh, characterization of these species? Or what did you guys do? Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, this species has been known to be new for a little while now. Mm-hmm. And my advisor collected a lot of specimens during his PhD work. He was working in the Appalachians on mm-hmm. a related group of millipedes. And so he kept finding this particular species, and it came in a whole lot of collars, um, all these just beautiful yellows and blacks and kind of differential spotting and kind of markings on it. And it was in this genus Aphaloria that uh, is pretty wide ranging across um, Eastern North America, mm-hmm. but no one had really sat down to categorize just how it was different and officially describe it. And so it's kind of been a back burner project for a while. And we recently kind of got it all together and took a look at over a hundred different specimens, kind of mapped out where it is able to be found um, its range and we kind of sat down and looked at those uh, gonopods those modified Mm -hmm. legs that are used to Mm -hmm. kind of delimit species but 
we also combined that with um, some genetics of the group. So we were able to see um, how it's genetically different from other species. And so that's a pretty big um, line of evidence that we used mm. to delineate a new species. And so we took the molecular data that we had, and then we, were, we took the morphological data that we had. We compared what those legs look like compared to others in the genus. And we mm. were able to say, okay, this is a new species. It has this range, and this is how you can identify it and differentiate it from other species. And so it, it's taken a while, but it's nice mm-hmm. that it's out, and uh, it's out there. You can just find it. Yeah. It, and what's the next step for you with that? Well, um, with that, I guess it's kind of looking to see where else it might occur, um, maybe a little bit outside the range that we know it from. But mm-hmm. what my work actually focuses on is um, a genus in that same family, Mm-hmm. but uh, a different species. And so uh, I'm working on a genus called Nanaria. Uh, we sometimes refer to it as the twisted claw millipede because the males Ooh. have these really interesting twisted claws at the cool. front end of their body. Uh, <laughs> we don't know what they use them for, but we think they might uh, hold on to females a little bit better with them. Mm-hmm. And it has a center of diversity in the Appalachian Mountains. And so right now um, I'm looking at uh, the particular group that uh, I'm working with has around 13 new species to describe. Oh, wow. wow. And so I'm trying to finish up some field work with that and collect uh, all the known species and the uh, new species concepts that we have to mm-hmm. try to extract genetic data from that and kind of do the same thing to where we can compare it with all the other members of the genus. And so still a lot of field work and really going around Appalachia and seeing where these things are and describe them so that we can really conserve them and make sure they're mm-hmm. not forgotten out there. So how, if you could estimate, how many do you think are out there that have yet to be described? Oh, that's a good question. Um, there are about 12,000 described species of millipedes worldwide. Mm-hmm. And estimates for how many total species there are uh, range from 20,000 to 80,000. Wow. And I, I would guess that our final number, once we've got all the millipede species described, is going to fall somewhere closer to 30 or 40,000. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, uh, so we, we've still got a ways to go. <laughs> That, that's that's why we have grad students and undergrads, right? So we can get out there and, and find those critters. That's right. So in the paper that you were you were working on, and possibly with this new research, uh, you guys were talking about uh, malaria and mimicry rings. Could you describe that a bit? And is that going to you think apply to this next stage that you're on, looking at these other undescribed species? Yeah, possibly. And so malaria and mimicry is when you have um, a certain color pattern or some other signal that. Uh, communicates to a predator that something is distasteful or poisonous or that they should in some way leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And so these millipedes use mullerian mimicry in that they are typically kind of darker colored. They're, they have a black base color, but they have these very bright um, colors on the sides of their body and on the top that kind of signal a warning. And so with this uh, particular group of millipedes, Aphaloria, um, they're typically uh, yellow, and so they have a beautiful black and yellow pattern, kind of like a yellow jacket mm-hmm. or some other wasp like that. So Mullerian mimicry, which sets it apart from another type of mimicry, Batian mimicry, uh, you have in this Mullerian mimicry complex uh, different species that share a similar collar pattern in this case. And so you have all these millipedes that are distasteful and poisonous sharing a dark collar with um, yellow spots or red spots or orange spots, and that communicates to any maybe rodent predators or maybe birds that if you eat these, you're going to have a bad time. Mm-hmm. And so 
they're able to back this up by having a defense um, that's chemically based. And so these millipedes, when they're disturbed, they can release a combination of hydrogen benzaldehyde, which mm-hmm. gives it a cherry smell, but also, uh, sorry, benzaldehyde and hydrogen cyanide. And so they're very poisonous. Um, if a bird were to eat the whole thing, it mm-hmm. would probably die. Oh, wow. Uh, but Usually they don't get it that far. They'll kind of pick them up and start to eat them, but then they'll find out, oh, this tastes really bad, and they'll throw up. And then they'll they'll have learned from that interaction, hey, I should leave any millipedes that look like this alone in the future. And so that's what they're relying on to get that signal across. And these are the ones you're working on now. Do they have a similar color pattern or potentially? See, that's interesting. The ones that uh, I'm working with, these twisted claw millipedes, uh-huh. they have that uh, dark base color. But mm-hmm. their spots are either uh, sort of pink or white or red, but mm. they're a lot more cryptic in their habits. And so they're not really walking around much. They're kind of down in the dirt. And uh, they don't seem to have as much of that uh, hydrogen cyanide defense as these other big-bodied cherry millipedes. And so they still have a little bit of it, but we think they're probably just relying more on um, not being active whenever mm-hmm. predators are around or just kind of keeping themselves down in the leaf litter and trying to avoid predators. But to the point to where, you know, something picked it up and tried to eat them, then they'd be able to, to defend themselves because they do have that poison. I, I had received a request from a listener. Um, I'm doing a special little Valentine's episode where I'm going to put together some fun information about the uh, crazy mating habits of our friendly little arthropod critters. Uh, and someone suggested millipedes. Uh, oh, I, I wasn't aware that they have any fun, uh, nifty things that they do. Am I, am I incorrect? What Do they have any special mating habits? Yeah, they have some really interesting ones, actually. Uh, there are, there's this group of millipedes. Um, it's an order called the Polyzenida, and mm-hmm. they look nothing like the standard millipede you might think of. When people think of millipedes, they think of something that's sort of cylindrical, almost like snake-like with a bunch of legs and mm-hmm. kind of brown-colored or sort of drab that they don't think is quite pretty. But polyzinin millipedes are known as the bristly millipedes because if you, were to look at, if you were to look at one up close, first you would notice that these things are only about four millimeters long and kind of hard to see. But you get that under a microscope and you see that they don't have this hard exoskeleton made of uh, that's infused with calcium like other millipedes have, they're kind of uh, soft and squishy. And instead of being hard, they're that squishiness, but they also have a bunch of hairs along their body. And so they almost look like a pincushion themselves. And so those hairs function for defense. Um, They have an interesting tuft at the end of their body that they can use to sort of um, defend themselves against ants. So if an ant were to come up and kind of antenate it and kind of try to figure out, oh, is this a nice snack? They would instead get a mouthful of these um, hooked hairs that really kind of gum up their mandibles. And then as they would use their legs to try to uh, get those hairs off, they would just get more stuck. So by the end of it, you just have an ant that's sort of in the fetal position while this millipede just wanders away. And what these millipedes do for mating uh, is something you don't see with other millipedes, but they will actually um, make this interesting little silken nest where they will deposit, the males do this, and the male will deposit a packet of sperm on this silken nest, and then it will create these other silken guidelines so that whenever a female bristly millipede is walking along the forest floor, it's going to find those guidelines, and then it'll know somehow, we don't know how exactly, but it'll find that and know which way to go to get to that sperm packet, 
and then just take that up and use that to fertilize its eggs. But if instead of a female bristly millipede, a different male bristly millipede comes onto that, he's going to say, oh, hey, there's this other male millipede trying to mate with the females in the area. So he will follow those guidelines down, gobble up that sperm packet, and leave his own so that the other millipede did the hard work for him. He just has to leave a packet of sperm there. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Little buggers. (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting. And, I mean, just the scale of this is... It just blows my mind because these things are so small. Um, Sometimes you'll find them under the bark of pine trees. If you pick up a pine cone and kind of shake it out, you might find a couple of them. And they're just so tiny, barely, you can barely even see them. They're just going around doing all this and Mm -hmm. just unbeknownst to us. And so, yeah, but that's the the bristly millipedes for you. Um, But then there are also uh, the giant poe millipedes, which kind of look like uh, a giant isopod. And there, you find them in places like Madagascar or India, um, Vietnam, kind of all around that area. And there are some species of Madagascar that uh, will mate in a certain way by the... Uh, and keep in mind that these things, uh, they don't have the best eyesight. So whenever mm-hmm. they think something might be a threat, they're going to curl up real tight. And you're not going to be able to uncurl them very easily. And so these things are about the size of a ping pong ball. And so they'll kind of be walking through the forest and they'll bump into each other and immediately just curl up because they don't know what just happened. So the female will stay curled up and the male will uncurl and use his antennae to smell her and be like, oh, hey, this is a female. Maybe we can mate. And so he's going to go and try to get her to unroll. But any kind of uh, stimulus that he that he gives to her will just kind of be interpreted as a predator. So instead, he has to go up and um, actually scrape on her body and almost sing and stridulate to her to get her to open up. And if she's receptive, then she'll uncurl and they'll mate that way. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) And so these are two different, like, exceptions with millipedes. But in Mm -hmm. general, when millipedes mate, um, they're going to be face-to-face, and the Mm -hmm. female will be a little bit lower on the male's body because keep in mind that the... uh, uh, genitalia of the male are in the seventh segment. Those are those modified legs that we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so his penis is actually on the second segment of his body, kind of closer to his uh, neck, if you will. And mm-hmm. so he, ha- before he mates, he has to sort of bend over so that his gonopods um, come in contact with his penis, and then the sperm is sort of taken up on those gonopods, and then he can uncurl, um, mate with the female, and he will use those charged gonopods that now have the sperm and insert them into um, this sort of purse-like organ called a cyphopod of the female. And that's how they'll mate. And so they'll kind of hang on to each other with their legs. Um, but some, in some species, the males have uh, various modifications on their legs to be able to hold on to the female a little bit better. Um, in a family known as the Parajulidae, this is mm-hmm. a native family throughout uh, all of North America um, and even into uh, Japan. And the males have these very enlarged front legs. Um, if you look at these guys under a microscope, you'll just see, okay, you've got normal leg along most of the body, but right under its head, it just has these massively expanded legs that are about 20 times as large as his other legs. And so they're really noticeable. They almost look like tusks. And he'll use those to just hold the female there until the mating is done, and then he'll let her go. And so that's sort of generally how millipedes mate. It's not... The most romantic, but when you look at the giant pale millipede or the bristly millipede, it's a little bit better. 
<laughs> well, they're they're saving on on uh, chocolates and 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 horrible shiny old diamond rocks. Uh, so they have a yeah, better deal like going. I, I had an idea for a question to ask every interviewer uh, or interviewee uh, as I go about this, and uh, I mentioned this before. And I'm curious because I know how I got to where I'm at, but we all have our own different path to where we are and uh, we all love science we, otherwise we would not be doing what we do because it's it's not glorious and and gorgeous well-funded and well-lit like it is on tv uh, so on your path to where you are now uh, what has stuck with you the most what piece of knowledge or idea or passionate concept that has just really resonated and continues to stay with you as you go I would say it all boils down to the fact that science isn't done in a vacuum. And that sort of informs a lot of what I do and what I'm thinking about as I'm, you know, doing my work. Uh, and so part of that is that, you know, we all have our biases, um, both societal and sort of within the science, within certain fields of science itself. And so you always want to be questioning that, but also um, kind of thinking about how what I'm doing, which is basic uh, descriptions of new species of millipedes in this case, how it's great that I'm doing that and mm -hmm. it needs to be done, but I also want to go the next step and kind of get that news out there so that, you know, particularly in Appalachia, we're seeing a lot of habitat loss. Um, mm -hmm. We have threats from invasive species, climate change, all of that. And so one thing that uh, our lab focuses on a lot is this concept of anonymous extinction to where we want to try to learn about these species, describe them, and hopefully try to protect them before they could go extinct right under our nose without us even knowing. So that drives a lot of our research, where we want to make sure we describe these things, but also get the news out there that, hey, mm -hmm. there are a lot of these beautiful species out here, and with millipedes, a lot of them are endemic to certain areas, so they're only found there and nowhere else. Sometimes this is one mountaintop or even just a couple of square kilometers area, and so we always want to be looking out that while we're describing these things, we're also thinking about conservation goals as well and sort of making sure we do what we can to protect these species and encourage others to do so as well. And so that's that's what really sticks with me, that this isn't work done in a vacuum and we want to get out there and tell tell other people the good news about millipedes. That's, that's amazing, and I resonate with a lot of what you just said, and that's kind of why I've decided to do this podcast. You know, it's we don't think about the little tiny creepy crawlies that are out there, but they are they are the vast majority of life on this planet. And uh, time to time to get them, let them have their little moment to shine. And I'm so thankful that you were here uh, to talk about it with me. And uh, if people who are listening to this want to get a hold of you or want to know more about millipedes, uh, how how do you recommend they do that? They can check out my Twitter, which is just at Cannon. And that's a pretty easy way to reach me. And okay. if you Google me, I'm sure you can find other ways if you're not on Twitter. All right, Google and Twitter, and I will uh, keep in touch, and I will post a link to uh, to your Twitter if people want to get hold of you uh, through our Facebook page. So one quick question. You play Pokemon. Yeah. Do you play Pokemon Go? Uh, I used to, but I haven't in a while. Ah. Kind of other thing. But I, I recently picked up The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, oh. and I've sort of become an insect photographer there. So I've been really getting into that. Oh, no. I didn't know there were insects in there. Oh, yeah. Uh, they have some great, oh. like, they're rhinoceros beetles and, like, darner dragonflies and stuff. I haven't found any millipedes yet, but I've been looking. Oh, well, now I have to go get myself a Switch so I can play put, Breath of the Wild. <laughs> oh, yeah. To put it into perspective, I waited about a year to make sure I would have the time and wouldn't be mm -hmm. ignoring other things I had to do. 
And a year later, I was still like, okay, I really want this. So then I, <laughs> then I made the decision. Well, it sounds like it was a very thoughtful, sound decision to make, and it's one that I will probably be probably be making myself at some point. Uh, well, great. it's pretty great. <laughs> I've heard nothing but good things about it. You know, we hear a lot about the uh, charismatic megafauna, but mm-hmm. time to pay more attention to the charismatic minifauna, as Gwen Pearson puts it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming on here, and I I hope to maybe do this again sometime after you have your PhD. You'll be all you'll be Doctor Derek Hennon, <laughs> and uh, and you will be all of the all of the famous for your millipede action. I sure hope so. Signs. All right. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again, and talk to you again soon sometime. Yeah, thanks for yeah. having me. It was great thanks. talking to you. Mm-hmm. All right. And that just about wraps it up for today's episode of the Bugcast. I'd like to thank Derek Hennon once again for being willing to sit down and chat with me about this. I hope you enjoyed it. I did, too. If you found this episode interesting, remember to hit that subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Maybe if you'd leave a review for me, be on iTunes or Google Play or one of those locations, wherever you find your podcasts. Go find us on Facebook at Bugs, Blood, and Bones. Also, I have BugsBloodAndBones at gmail.com. If you'd like to suggest a question or an idea for an episode, I'm more than happy to look into that for you. A big thank you to the Underscore Orchestra for their amazing music. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks. And remember, kids, keep calm and carry on. Thank you.